That's great. Perfect. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Once again, this is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... There is nothing that human beings like better than to be participants. It makes them feel like they are somebody, not just customers, but partners. This episode, we're talking to... Al Jaffe. About... We work on the stage that we're given. Those of us who succeed are the ones who exploit our stage. We take our stage and we regard it not as limiting, but actually as expanding. We're in Al Jaffe's studio today somewhere. It's a very beautiful, extremely organized place. I was impressed immediately. Of course, nothing important gets done here, but it's well organized. It looks like lots of important things get done. He's got awards on the wall. He's got Time Magazine covers. Colbert Report giving you some honors there. Yeah. I have a frozen screen, so all I see is a corner of the ceiling in John's arm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as long as you can hear us. Yeah, it's not a big deal yet. Although it's funny that I don't get to see Al's face. You may be fortunate. You're, you're kind of a funny guy, Al. I think you might have a future in this business. I doubt it. I'm good at self-effacement. Well, you're terrible at FaceTime. <laughs> I read that Al Jaffe has the longest career of any comics artist in history. Well, that is attested to by a plaque that I just received on my 95th birthday party. It's from the Guinness Book of weird records. Actually, they don't call it weird. Oh, is that a joke? (laughs) Under the circumstances, it is a weird record. They said, I have the longest continuous working, you know, record in in the cartooning business, which is 73.3 years of working as a cartoonist. So... There you are. Well, that was March, so it's now 73 years, six months. Well, it's, yeah, it's moving up. I don't know that that's such a distinguished factoid. I think I'd rather have had it be for nuclear science or something like that, but cartooning is what I'm stuck with. So you want people's takeaway to be that you're kind of terrible? No, I'm actually quite good at what I do, you know, just as warmongers are and uh, our current politicians running for the presidency. I love that you can tell that joke in any time since Mad Magazine started, and it's still a pretty good joke. (laughs) Yes, it still is. Timeless. The the oldies are the goodies. (laughs) Usually the way that we do these is we start, you know, autobiographically. So we start at the beginning and then we just go from there. But it's only uh, like a one-hour podcast, so I don't know if we can do that with you, but let's try. Okay. You were born a long time ago. Yes. And from what I know from the book that you uh, helped make about your life, Al Jaffe's Mad Life, you were bounced back and forth a lot between America and Lithuania. Yes, that's true. Early on, you had a talent for puns, and I noticed that when you learn a new language, 
instantly, like you see puns that people who know the language don't get because they are used to it. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you were good at language because you didn't always speak English uh, at home? Well, when I uh, moved to Lithuania from uh, Savannah, Georgia, which is where I was born and, and brought up to the age of six, I had to learn new languages in Lithuania. One of them was Yiddish because we lived in the Jewish section of town. And the other one was Russian, which was a common language in Lithuania because Lithuania was owned by Tsarist Russia prior to World War I. So there were lots of languages that you needed to know. Polish as well, you had to know some Polish because there were a lot of stores that were run by Polish people. And it was a uh, a polyglot. You you had to know a lot of uh, different ways to deal with people. I found it kind of fascinating. And as a very young child, you pick these things up very quickly. I didn't become fluent in Russian or Polish or even Yiddish, but I picked up the things that I needed to know to get by. And I felt kind of good about that. It was an an awakening to the fact that there was more to life in this world than just the tiny little community you hung around in where you were born and you lived. So I, I had an expanded view of the world at a very early age. Do you feel like you were observing differences in different communities or did they all, the adults, kind of seem the same uh, no matter what language they spoke? I think what the overview that my experiences as a child gave me, and I don't want to sound ponderous about this, but I think being subjected to different languages and different practices of these people, it opened my eyes at a very early age to to the fact that there were a lot of differences in populations, and I saw a lot of humor in it. Some of the practices, which seemed very normal to certain segments of the population, seemed rather crazy to me, just as different religious groups think that other religions are preposterous, I noticed that a lot of social activities were kind of amusing because they were different. So at the same time, you, you found that a, a certain amount of tolerance in this, and you began to realize that the way uh, weddings were conducted by the Polish people and by Russian people and by Jewish people, they were different in many ways, but they were uh, all happy occasions. So you became, I found that tolerance was very important. I know that like when we have a wedding, we break glass to scare away the evil spirits in a Jewish community. Was there anything that really stuck out to you about weddings in Russian or Polish or anything else that seemed different to you? Yes, certain dances, for example, which were folk dances. I was fascinated by the Polish folk dancers and the Russian folk dancers. I don't remember that the the Jewish weddings were much more focused on biblical matters, praying and reading of the passages from Bibles and stuff. It just seemed more serious. 
whereas the uh, Gentile uh, seemed to enjoy drinking and dancing and having more fun. Maybe they weren't, maybe they weren't, but from a child's point of view, that's what I got out of it. Well, the impression I always got was that the Jewish community was very self-consciously trying to preserve itself, and so it was really focused on, like, learning the Torah and stuff like that, and it was more serious because it felt like it was, like, a, a threatened thing, whereas the Christian kids could kind of take their religion for granted, and the church was like a social hour. That's true, Zach, but another aspect of it was the fact that graven images were strictly against the Jewish religion, whereas the Gentile community had crucifixes and sculptures of Christ and all kinds of visual material, including paintings. So the Jewish God was much more in the mind and not visually available. I remember making drawings of Noah's Ark and of Moses standing on the tip top of a mountain. As kids, we wanted to have religious symbols in the Jewish religion, but it basically was forbidden. Did you have to like sneak away and do a picture of Noah? Did oh you no, you, you could do interpretations oh, okay. from the Bible, but it was not officially sanctioned, and you couldn't go to a synagogue and, and expect to see a painting of anything right. from the Bible. Yeah, it's interesting, like, the Jewish Museum in New York was, like, one of the very early major museums to, like, show abstract paintings, because there were a lot of Jewish artists in the 50s who were doing those. Hmm. Well, abstract, I think, is permissible. It's What's not permissible is realistic representations of a deity or of biblical material. I mean, I don't know why it was forbidden. I can't remember. I think I was told at one time, but I just don't remember it. It's called graven images. That may be where all the macaroni pictures came from. <laughs> I'll buy that. We can start our own religion. Yeah, it's all macaroni. Like, there was a lot of different interpretations in the Muslim community, and I've seen, like, Muslim books where one person created a story of Muhammad and another person, who a later collector, went through and painted a black line through the neck of every single figure. Wow. So they still had the artwork, but none of the creatures were living, quote-unquote, because they had a black line through their neck. Yeah. Which it kind of speaks to, like, in different community, different parts of the Muslim community, there were different attitudes toward that, although they didn't end up having, like, a really big representational tradition for religious subjects. When was the first time that that seemed like a, a real thing to you that you thought about? Were you a teenager already, or were you a kid when you were thinking about that? Not representing God as a thing. When you're a young child, you don't question. I just simply accepted uh, whatever the uh, older people told us about religious practices. The only thing that I did question, probably because I came from uh, Savannah, Georgia, where it was not a village where everyone followed the, a local preacher of any particular faith, I started to question things like, why can't I go out and play ball on Saturday? You know, what kind of harm is it doing to God? that a little kid is throwing a ball back and 
forth with a friend. Those questions uh, started bothering me, and since I never got an answer that gave me any kind of satisfaction, I uh, just went on doing what I felt like doing. Was there a path that you saw out for you if you hadn't become an illustrator? Was there like some school and work like path that was kind of ready for you in the life that you had? That's a very difficult uh, thing for me to deal with because when I did have abilities in areas when I was in high school where my teachers were encouraging me to do all kinds of things, one teacher in particular told me to go and take a course in radio announcing because uh, she felt that my voice would lend itself to becoming a radio announcer. Well, put that in the context of the 1930s, when radio was as big as television is today, and radio announcers were making tons of money, that sounded like a great idea. But it didn't appeal to me enough. I liked working with my hands, and I think, if anything other than painting and drawing and illustrating were to be considered by me, it would have been inventing things, better ways to do uh, various kinds of things, which is why I had an easy time doing my book of mad inventions, because... Some of them are good ideas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of them got actually got made. Some of them got made. One of the very first ones I remember was just, it was like uses for Velcro, and like some of them were funny. Like, I mean, they were all funny, but I mean, some of them were like only funny. Like it was a Velcro landing strip for airplanes. But then you had one that was like, put a Velcro strip on the toilet seat so you when you put it up, it stays up. And I'm like, that's a real idea. And then I later found out that like a bunch of things you invented later somebody else like made it work. Yes, I am actually mentioned in a couple of patent applications. One of them in which I was mentioned was the ashtray that sucks the smoke into itself rather than letting the smoke fill the room. Right. And that came from an article I did for Matt on dealing with tobacco smoke. It's only, you know, a a short step from uh, satire to reality uh, and the other way. Yeah, it's a good point how, like, joke about a thing can become the thing. Do you ever, like, regret not... I've got a list here of things that people noticed. Snowboarding, 1965. Telephone redial and address books. Computer spell checker. Peelable stamps. Multi-blade razors. Graffiti-proof buildings are all things that were in your comics before they were in real life. Yeah, that's true. Do you ever regret, like, not doing the whole patent process? No, I, I have no regrets because I enjoy what I do. If it prompts other people or gives them, uh, you know, a little bit of a jump start to take it a step or two or five further, that's fine with me. I do it for the fun of the magazine's readers, and I don't have to uh, go through the, uh, the tedious work of patenting or copywriting. Or The one area of, of life that I despise is uh, uh, paperwork, you know, uh, technical stuff like 
lawyer work. Sure. You know, I respect lawyers, but I don't want to be one of them. And uh, I don't want to be a, an accountant. I don't want to be an auditor. I just want to come up with zany ideas. And if anyone can take them a step further and make a ton of money out of it, good luck to them. <laughs> I'm happy with what I do. All right. That's a good outlook. Did you make inventions when you were a kid? Yes, my brother Harry and I, when we lived in Lithuania, as you know, he was a year and a half younger than I was. So, but Harry was a he was a brilliant artist, and he became somewhat famous in his own right during World War II. He uh, created a line of uh, airplane paintings that became collectors' items. And if you ever saw any of his airplane paintings. I mean, I took a bunch of them into Macy's, a half a dozen of them, and they took one look at it, and they bought them on the spot. And uh, Abercrombie and Fitch also displayed and sold his paintings. But Harry was, he was a wonderful inventor. Like, is he Harry Jaffe or Harry something else? Harry Jaffe was his name. He unfortunately died a number of years ago. He was a technical artist. And he was a fine artist as well. He was a terrific artist. He was not a cartoonist. Yeah. I had the cartooning covered, and he had fine art and technical art covered. When we were kids, I mean, Harry, he made things, he made a little fire engines just using pieces of wood, and it actually squirted water. I mean, I, I can't go into the details of how he did it, but... Grown-ups, when they saw it, it boggled their minds. And he was only a five-year-old boy when he made this whole thing. That's so, amazing. Yeah, you know, there's such a thing as just absolute natural talent. And he had that inventive talent in spades compared to me. But I, I created some things myself, but I took my hat off to my younger brother. I'm sorry, did you go to an arts high school? Did I remember reading that? Uh, we both went to the... I was in the first class of the High School of Music and Art. And then when, when Harry's turn came to go to high school, he was reluctant about going to an art school. He wanted to go to a mechanical school uh, where he could build things. But I talked him into going to music and art, and we both graduated from the high school music and art. In New York? Yes. It still exists, but it's now the high school of art, and uh, it has a much longer name, the high school of music, art, and design, I guess. It's still a very highly regarded school. And you met, um, you met other Mad Magazine artists there? I met other future Mad Magazine artists there. The most prominent one was Harvey Kurtzman, who was the creator of Mad Magazine. Will Elder was my closest friend in the high school of music and art. John Severin was another music and arter. Al Feldstein, who became editor after Harvey Kurtzman, was also a graduate. And there was a long, long list of guys who came out of that early high school. Later on, very talented people came out uh, in other fields, especially a lot of people in the music business. 
There were a couple of very famous musical people whose names I can't remember at the moment. It just, it was a terrific school. That must have been a fun time in the cafeteria with those guys. <laughs> yeah, we, we had some wonderful... The class cut-ups, were you? We had a good group. Each one of us was talented in his own way, his or her own way, because there were a lot of young girls in music and art that I admired enormously. I would sit in the art class and just watch Rosalie Goldstone paint portraits. She was just remarkable. I mean, it was just wonderful, wonderful people. I wish my memory for names was better, but, you know, I think now that I'm 95-plus years old, uh, I can be excused for not remembering <laughs> the high school days in 1935, <laughs> Sure, 36. yeah, you are forgiven. So that high school is now uh, what New Yorkers call LaGuardia. Exactly. He was our patron saint because he created the High School of Music and Art originally. And I'll never forget being in the assembly when he greeted us, the first class to be there. And in his squeaky little voice, a lovable guy, he said, my boys and girls. And <laughs> he just, he embraced us and we loved him. And I would have voted for him a million times uh, for mayor <laughs> or president. There's that statue of him outside the, the bank in Soho. And he's like, he looks like he's just kind of wheeling around with his hand. Like he, he's got this expression, which I always thought he just, he looks like a likable guy. He was a wonderful mayor. He, he not only created things like the high school music and art, but he did very, very ordinary things like uh, newspapers went on strike and in those days we didn't have every family did not have a radio of course television didn't exist and uh, there were many many people who you know just had the very basics of life and newspapers were important and when the newspapers went on strike and there were no Sunday comics he knew that a lot of children would be devastated by not knowing what happened to little Orphan Annie or Dick Tracy. So he got on the municipal radio and read the funnies. <laughs> and he's, in his high squeaky voice, he says, And here is what happened this week to little Orphan Annie. And he uh. read the Sunday funny. Priorities. And he endeared himself to everybody in the city because of his very humanistic approach to being a politician. And, uh, even I, who was just a uh, stupid little kid, teenager, I recognized what a wonderful guy he was. Uh, I couldn't vote, but if I were able to vote, yeah, I'd vote for him over and over again. <laughs> I heard a funny thing about him that he put pushed through a law that made it illegal to uh, have a monkey in a performance in New York because he was Italian and a lot of Italians were organ grinders and he used to get made fun of when he was a kid. Like they would say, hey, organ grinder, where's your monkey? 
And so he was like, yes. no more of that. So he passed a law against organ grinding and monkeys in Manhattan. And that's like the only thing I really hold against him. I think the monkeys do too, but... Uh, They're out of work. But then a lot of, a lot of them became very popular politicians. <laughs> nice. I noticed like in the early history of comics, it's all Jews and they all started in New York and a lot of them were in these great public education schools. Like there was LaGuardia, but there's also like Cooper Union produced like Bob Kane who did Batman. Yes. So how come all Jews are comic geniuses? Well, it isn't all Jews. (laughs) A lot of Jews did become important in, in the comic book business, but that is probably due to a certain amount of anti-Semitism that's been around since time began. Uh, you know, I found out right after graduating from the High School of Music and Art, and I had my big portfolio of high school work, okay, and I was told, don't even bother to go to the advertising agencies, which is the only places that we can think of that would buy artwork because they did advertising illustrations and cartoon illustration. They said, don't even bother. Uh, if they find out you're Jewish, you're not going to get in and you're not going to get work because these are WASP organizations. So getting a foothold in the art world was very, very difficult. And along came a couple of Jews, Max Gaines, the father of Bill Gaines, got the idea of going to the syndicated newspaper distributors and asked them what they did with old Sunday comics. And they said, we don't do anything with them. Once it's published on Sunday in the newspapers, we throw it out. And he said, can I rent them from you or buy them from you? I don't know what kind of financial arrangement he made, but it must have been a pittance. And they said, sure, give us whatever you want to give us and go ahead and use it. Because it had no use after the papers used it. And he put together famous funnies. I just, for people who don't know, Bill Gaines was EC Comics, like the famous horror comics. And this was his father. This is his father, Max Gaines. And I wasn't privy to this period of time. So I'm giving it to you secondhand. There are historians who have it, you know, pinned down to facts. But as a general thing, I just know that Max Gaines assemble the stuff. Oh, and it's important to note that Max Gaines represented a printing company. The printing company was in dire straits because this was the heart of the Depression, and everybody was in dire straits. All businesses were. So he thought, well, what if I put this stuff together and I can, I can get it printed for nothing because I represent printing company, So they printed up a few sample magazines, and he drove around and stopped at candy stores everywhere in New York and uh, dropped off a couple of copies and said, I'll be back later, and if you sell them, I'll give you uh, a share of the price, and if you don't sell them, I'll pick them up and take them elsewhere. Well, the story that I heard was that when he drove back to pick these things up, they were all gone. For 10 cents, uh, these comic books were going like crazy. Although 10 cents in today's money 
would be like twelve dollars. You know, you know, right. to, fooling around with inflation is driving crazy. But anyway, ten cents put two packs of cigarettes. Right. So uh, you can see the value of it. So they were they were better for kids who didn't smoke. Yeah, <laughs> the comic books were mostly gone. So he knew he had a business by the tail, and he combined with other people, and they started eventually. They ran out of Sunday pages. I think the uh, syndicates got wise to it and stopped allowing it. So they said, well, we'll create original material. And there were plenty of Jewish cartoonists starving at the time who were perfectly happy to create stuff. Siegel and Schuster created Superman, Bob Kane and uh, Bill Finger put together Batman, and uh, they were off and running. Yeah. You knew Stan Lee back in the day before Marvel, right? The way I became involved and became friends with Stan was I got a job penciling for a guy who was handling stuff for Timely Comics, even before Stan Lee came there. And so he hired me as a penciler. And what, what he handed me was a script by Stan Lee titled The Imp. So I, I penciled The Imp, and Chad Grothkopf inked it, and then it went to Stan Lee, and they published it. Well, I asked Chad Grothkopf for a raise because I was starving to death at uh, $3 a page or whatever he paid me at the time. So he said no. So I, I went up to Stan Lee and I showed him the stuff that I'd been penciling and uh, my own work. And he threw a script at me called Squat Car Squad. He said, all right, pencil, ink, and bring this back to me and we'll go from there. When I brought it back to him, he said, all right, you keep on writing Squad Car Squad, penciling it and inking, and I'll pay you for all three. You know, it was a piecework. Right. And you got paid for script per page, uh, pencils per page, inks per page, and someone got paid for lettering per page. So I started doing that, and he kept me so busy, I didn't know what to do with myself. Now, I'm, when I met him, he was 19, and I was like 20 or 20. Oh, yeah. wow. He was 19 going on 20, and I was 20 going on 21, I think. I loved working with Stan because he uh, seemed to like my work. That, that's very flattering. One day he said to me, create an animal feature. So I said, well, everything's been done, Stan, except one. I can do a seal. I'll call it Silly Seal. It, was there like a competition to to use the animals? Like you're like, ah, oh, we got a bunny, we got a duck, we got a porcupine. All the good animals were taken. Yeah. Well, you tried to come up with something uh, original because Disney was out there producing all this stuff, and Mighty Mouse people were also had animal features. Did they have to be mammals or birds. They could be anything. Because, so, but I mean, uh, I know you notice that they don't do that many lizards. You know, like or like reptiles, they're less common. I was wondering if that's a thing. Well, there's uh, gecko. <laughs> that's true. No, Who was the yeah. gecko? Very popular. There was, a, there was a gecko? I didn't know there was a gecko. The insurance gecko. No, the but I mean, <laughs> I mean then, at the time. 
you know? At the time, cuddly animals were more popular, little right. pigs. Uh, but uh, there was a guy uh, who eventually became an editor at, at Time with Comics when Stan Lee and I both went into the uh, military, and he came up with uh, a pelican. I forget his name now, but he was a very good cartoonist, and he was not eligible for the war, so he, be, he took over the editorship from Stan. I forget what this pelican's name was. Polly the Pelican, maybe, who knows? <laughs> anyway, there was Super Rabbit. I did Super Rabbit. I didn't create it, but I, I took it over. It, it was a very exciting time when all kinds of ideas. I mean, I worked for Will Eisner for a short period, Will was a genius, another young genius like Stan. He created the spirit, which was marvelous. Right. So, you know, they were exciting times. And there again, Will Eisner, Stan Lee, Martin Goodman, a lot of Jewish people getting into this business because the more sacrosanct businesses like advertising and uh, magazine illustration were limited areas for Jewish people to get into. Do you ever remember any like explicit advice from like Eisner or Stan about how cartooning worked? Or was it just like they would make something and you would be like, all right, I'm learning together and we're learning that way? Well, I think listening is a very good nobility to have. You have to divine in some way when you're a, a youngster and you're looking to get somewhere, you have to figure out what their program really is. What are they after? Are they after adventure? Are they after humor? Are they after a combination of adventure and humor? You can do all of those things. And now with Stanley, I introduced something that I think Stan must have responded to because that's why he trusted me and he asked me to create stuff. When he threw that squat car squad thing at me, I took it and I started writing it and I started to think, what can you do with a couple of bumbling policemen chasing crime and chasing criminals? You know, it gets kind of tedious after a while because it's a cops and robbers story and the cops are always going to win, eventually. So you're only uh, trying to figure out how to come up with a unique kind of criminal. And that gets to be fairly boring. One script, I came up with the notion of breaking the fourth wall. I had Sergeant Rook and Private, uh, what's his name? The, the sergeant says to his cohort, he says, I'm sick and tired of chasing after crooks, and all that happens is we get beat up, and I'm, I'm going on strike. I don't want to do this anymore. And in the next panel, Stan Lee bends the panel over and says, either you guys get back to work or you're out of this comics feature. And I did a caricature of Stan Lee. Well, Stan went for that. And then I, I also put me into it at one point where I told these guys to stop fooling around and goofing off because Stan is going to come and fire all of us. <laughs> <laughs> you, 
Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. Both Marvel Comics and Mad Magazine had something that DC never did, which was they were always talking about the behind the scenes. A big part of Marvel's advertising was like, Stan and Jack are, are here to take you on an adventure, and, and here's a f- and it exists to this day where they, they talk about what's going on as if it's like a big, funny, the bullpen. And then at Mad Magazine, yes. unlike EC and like unlike DC, they're always talking about how we're like a gang of idiots and they would show the mad offices. For a kid, I think it created this vision of New York as a magical place where there was like the crazy things in the comics would happen in the big city, but also there was this crazy office that you could go work at full of kooky people. Yes, you're absolutely right, Zach. And if I may build on what you just said, you bring the reader into the magazine. There is nothing that human beings like better than to be participants. It makes them feel like they are somebody, not just customers, but partners. And it is a partnership. I create something and it goes into the magazine and I get fan letters. I've had people point out that they recently I I did a fold-in, just as as an example, I'm not uh, trying to advertise my product, but as an example, there was a box of kitty litter and I did my signature and my caricature in the kitty litter. Well, I got mail on that saying it was hysterical to see me and the author of this thing in the kitty litter. It's a participation. You're making a connection with your reader where the reader is a part of the whole thing. And uh, EC Comics, Mad Magazine in particular, started doing that To my credit, I think I started doing that in uh, Squad Car Squad, where I had these cops and Stan Lee and me coming into the thing and arguing with each other and threatening to fire people. Like, it's not a comic book anymore. It's it's like it's it's an office, and we're all in it. I don't want to make more out of this than it is, but it's just a simple fact that when I was a little kid, and I saw something that I thought was meant just for me, not realizing that it's made, it's a communication uh, one way or another to every little kid, not just me. But at that point in my life, I thought it was just for me. And that made me feel like a million bucks. And I think that's what a lot of the early mad stuff that Harvey Kurtzman did, that Will Elder did with his little private jokes in the background, and it, it just made connections with the reader. People do it in television and on radio. When they successfully make this connection, it's, it's very strong with the popularity of the product. I remember when I was a kid, whenever there was a movie for kids, I wanted to see it no matter what it was because most of what you would see on TV were ad for, ads for things that only grown-ups could see or care about and so no matter how stupid it was if it was a movie that was directed to kids i'd be into it they've really picked that up like nickelodeon picked up this sort of like anti-parent this is for kids kind of show thing it's sort of a staple especially of kids entertainment is like this is for you and we're together against somebody else well you're absolutely right zach i 
excuse me for beating around the bush on this thing, because it's really a simple fact that from the point of view of a child, which is what a lot of comics are directed towards, a child, from the moment that he becomes aware that he's a human being, he is talked down to. He is told what's good for him or her. He's told what to eat, what not to eat, where to go, where to not go. He's instructed, constantly instructed. Then along comes a little piece of artwork in a children's book or in a comic book or wherever. And it says, hey, we're partners in this. Uh, I'm not going to tell you where to go or what to do, but why don't we go together and do this and have some fun? (laughs) And once you get that message through, you've got a friend for life. And that was my attitude. I never wanted to be a lecturer, even though I'm lecturing right now. No, I'm really trying to share what I've picked up in all the years that I've been a cartoonist is that you don't treat your reader, no matter how young he or she is, as a piece of meat that needs to be told how to live. No, this child knows how to live, knows what's funny, knows what entertains, knows what bores, and you have to be a partner. And that's where I think the success of uh, some of the products that we have produced, uh, the success has come from that. You're sort of known for uh, your, your comic snappy answers to stupid questions. How, how did that come about? Well, there, a snappy answer to stupid questions, really, it comes off as being pretty snotty and sarcastic. But the fact is... Yeah, and I loved it as a youngster. Yes, <laughs> readers loved it. I produced... My first Snappy Answers book for Mad sold well over a million copies and produced tons of mail from countries all over the world. I got fan letters from India, because India has a fairly large population of English-speaking people. Mm -hmm. I think the thing behind it, it, even though it's it's sarcastic and could be considered mean-spirited in some ways, especially if the the stupid questioner is just asking a a reasonable question, like, is this a bus stop? And there's a big sign that says bus stop. And the guy gives a snappy answer to that. It's it's reasonable to feel that that was a stupid question. And so just answering, yes, this is a bus stop, makes you feel like an automaton that any normal human being would want to say, what do you think this sign says, you know? Or want to say something other than, yes, this is the bus stop. Of course, if, if it's from somebody who does not speak English, then you have to be nicer about it. But we are very often plagued by people asking questions that, everyone should know the answer to. Is that the sun up in the sky? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) What what is it going to be, a spotlight? David Letterman's basically, that's 
the top 10 format. You know, like, he took that and just altered it a little bit. You know, like, he'd have, like, one premise and then a bunch of different responses to the premise, you know? It has been pointed out to me that uh, Rube Goldberg did something similar in his uh, cartoon strip in a Sunday feature called uh, Boo McNutt. Yeah. And he had on, on the top, there was a top panel on his Sunday page that had a panel that said, labeled Foolish Questions. And uh, he did something similar. Now, uh, whether anyone wants to believe me or not, uh, that's up to them. I did not copy that. I may have, it may have been in my head subliminally from when I was six years old and read Boo McNutt in Lithuania. But when it popped into my head, it was because I remember uh, walking uh, down the street uh, in uh, where I lived in Babylon and somebody had uh, run their car into a tree and a man ran over to the driver of the car and said, have an accident? <laughs> and I, I, I walked away and I said to myself, no, thank you. I've already had one. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know, there's something funny about that. Yeah. But I, I, I dismissed that. I just forgot about it. And then, then we had a thunderstorm and the antenna on the roof of my house got knocked over. I got a ladder, I climbed up, I was nervous as hell, I have a fear of heights, trying to straighten the antenna for the television set, and I hear the footsteps behind me on the ladder, and it's my son, who has come back from school, and he says, where's mom? And I'm nervous as hell up there, I said, I've killed her, I'm stuffing her down the chimney. (laughs) (laughs) And I had heard reverse footsteps. When I got down, I, I apologized to my son because I didn't want him to feel bad. But, but I, I sat down and I started writing a few of these and I thought, this has got to be a mad article. It's, this is very funny. And I brought it into Al Feldstein at Mad, about five or six samples, and he said, great, we're going to go with this. And that's how... My uh, thing was born. But I think we all stand on the shoulders of giants, as some famous person said. And I'm, I'm willing to admit that in every idea that I've had, it's come to me from somewhere. I don't know where a lot of them have come from, but God bless whoever inspired me. Like, Rube Goldberg had, like, he did inventions, and then he did stupid questions, and then you did also have done inventions and stupid questions, and then, like, the IT crowd and a lot of other jokes that are, like, by engineers and computer people, they do inventions and then stupid questions, and I feel like maybe that's something about the the engineering-type personality, where you're, like, you're smart. And you feel like people are always asking stupid questions because you know how things work. And but also because you're an engineering type, you're kind of like noticing you're very polite. You like to be nice to people in real life. And so maybe you like create this. The the cartoon is an excuse to like, well, what would I say if I wasn't polite? You're absolutely right, Zach. 
You're absolutely right. And we swallow a lot of stuff. There's a lot of sarcastic and smart-ass answers that we could have given, and we, we uh, you know, grab our mouth and say, shut up to ourselves. And everybody feels that way. I mean, if everyone in society went around and really expressed their frustration and uh, with, you know, bothersome questions and stuff like that, you know, we'd have a very, very nasty society. Most of us hold back this kind of stuff. But when we do humor on a page or before a microphone, it's make-believe, and we feel that the characters we create, uh, no one will identify with the, the fall guy. Uh, they, they will identify with the smart aleck. So we get away with it that way because we're representing the smart alecks. And it's a release from frustration because there are situations where people are trapped. You're working for a boss, and your boss comes in and ask you a stupid question. Well, you're not going to give him a smart aleck answer. You're going to say, yes, sir, you're right about that. And mumbling under your breath to yourself, you say, schmuck, you know, I could have given this guy an answer that would have been really funny. But you can't do it in real life, so we do it in make-believe. It's a release of tension. But I think it also, at least for kids, I think reading Mad, you want to be... The smart out because a lot of times references in Mads would be like a little bit over the head of the kid reading uh, it, like it's re- reference to an adult world, and you kind of yes. are like, I want to be the smart person who gets this like Hugh Hefner joke, like I want to be the smart person who realizes that a cactus is not a cuddly, t- you know, like it, yeah. it's interesting how it works on the mind of a, a small. Yeah, you know, we've been talking for about an hour. We haven't even gotten to the to the fold in. And you mentioned like your ideas come from you don't know where. So I guess you don't know where the mad fold in came from, or do you? I do. Okay. Uh, uh, they come in in large part. They come from the editorial staff at Mad because it would be a great waste of time for me to come up with an elaborate idea for a fold in and walk into MAD with it and have them say, our readers really don't care at all about what's going on in the Greek financial system or some subject that mm-hmm. may be near and dear to my heart right. but does not represent the readership of MAD magazine. They care about the new blah, blah, blah movie. Yeah. So they come up. It's really a collaborative effort. I get credit for the art and for the script which I think is fair enough because they come up with the subject and the subject might be we've got to do something about the Kardashian sisters. Right, which I assume you're not watching. Something that I <laughs> don't know anything about. Right, yeah. And uh, then they give me some information about the background of the Kardashians and, and what makes uh, it a good subject for a fold-in and a joke. And then I go to work on it. So I have... a I have the framework. At the beginning, for the first several years of the fold-in, I came up with everything, brought it in cold, and either had it accepted or rejected. Now it works a lot smoother because uh, once I know what the subject is, I can elaborate in my own fashion. And if it's not exactly right, they make suggestions. 
I go back to the drawing board, make some changes, and we fashion it. And it's worked, I think, quite well in the last four or five years. And I remember reading that you're not actually folding it in as you're working on it. You don't get to see it till it's printed, folded in? Yeah, I don't get to see the finished product until it's folded. So you're just guessing, you're just like, you're, I guess you have Printed, a system. I, mean. <laughs> I, of course, work with tracing paper in which I do the folded version first, and then I cut it apart and spread the two pieces, and then put a fresh piece of tracing paper over it and fill in the center. And if it's not working properly, then I go back to the folded version and uh, do some adjusting, and then, so there's a lot of back and forth. Did you invent hold-ups, where you hold the magazine up to the light, and then you can see what's on the other side? I did one of those. Maybe I did two of them, I don't know. Yeah, I came in with that idea. That's amazing that you brought this up, because you're picking my brain. (laughs) Just this past week, I started to think, you know, it might be fun to... Uh, propose another one to them. So I start to think, how can I do, you know, this double image where the fold-in is one picture and then on the back page have another image and uh, the two combine when you hold it up to the light. It's a huge challenge, very complicated. So I haven't really followed up on it. I might do it though, I don't know. How many fold-ins have you done? Now at this point, well over four hundred. Wow! Ultimately, they're they're paintings. They're paintings, approximately fifteen inches by twenty inches. And the the lettering, or how are you doing the lettering on it? The the lettering is done in Mad's office on on the computer. Okay. Yeah, I just do the art. Have you ever done art on a computer? Never. Do no. you do you have any interest? Well, if I were younger. I would absolutely find somebody to train me to use Photoshop and stuff like that because it would save a tremendous amount of work. I have had to repaint uh, fold-ins that weren't working, and it means starting from scratch. But if it's on the screen, all I have to do is wipe out what I don't want and put new stuff in. But it's so precious the way you're doing it. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said for how precious your hand in this day and age. Well, I something. love what I'm doing. And yeah. I love the feel of, of paint and the brush and uh, the physical aspect of it. I love it. I have to also ask you, I've, I've been looking, you have these paper clips in your studio that you've unfolded straight in a jar here? Oh, yeah. Well, what are these paper clips for? They're not paper clips. Oh, they're not. No, they're, I had a, a length of telephone wire. And uh, as you know, tele, telephone wiring is uh, red, green, and yellow. And, uh, okay, I didn't know, but okay. I didn't know what to do with it. And then I said, you know something, I'll pull all these red, yellow, and green wires out from it and cut them into small strips and use them as uh, twist ties. Oh, okay. Resourceful. Recycling. Engineer. Recycling. He's an inventor. (laughs) Well, uh, going back to the Lithuania period, very briefly, you you could not buy anything in the 1920s when I lived in Lithuania, in a small shtetl in Zalazar. If you needed anything, you made it. If 
you needed a fishing pole, you went into the woods and cut a fishing pole down. The only item that we did not make by hand, virtually, were fishing hooks. But every other aspect of the fishing business we made by hand, including the fishing lines, which consisted of white horsehairs. So we did learn to recycle, reuse, make everything, and you develop an eye for things that most people regard as garbage. And uh, I don't regard it as garbage. I see it as useful in in another form. And uh, it goes from many things, even though I can afford to go out and buy these things today, I still make them because I get a kick out of recycling. Yeah, why buy twist ties? You got them right here. It's doing the job. That's great. The inventiveness is a big part of what has made Mad have its own identity rather than... The, the comics had different formats. Each, each one had its own... It, 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 there was an inventiveness. Like Spy versus Spy always worked the same way and that would, there would be inventions. And Sergio's comics that go around the margins were a certain kind of invention. And like there were just these certain sort of tropes and shticks that characterize the, the magazine so that it wasn't just an anthology of jokes. You know, it, it had an identity because of those inventions. Yes, I agree. I, I, I do agree. It is especially remarkable that someone like Sergio Aragonés, who is a dear friend and a talented, talented man, he, the way I put it, he speaks cartoon. Hmm. Like some people speak French, some people speak English, Sergio speaks cartoon. It might be called pantomime cartooning. I don't call it pantomime cartooning. It's a language. Right. He gets across the subtlest emotional notions, like if somebody is heartbroken, Sergio can draw it in such a way that you practically feel like crying with this heartbroken person, just in these little squiggles that he makes. He is a master of drawing emotion. The action is beautiful, fine, but if he has a guy walking up to a girl and smiling at her, he does it in such a way that you know romance is going to follow. Not every cartoonist or every artist or even every illustrator can achieve this kind of pictorial speech, and Sergio can do that. But each and every one of the people connected to MAD has a talent in their own right. I mean, the mastery of of caricature cannot be surpassed in the hands of uh, Moore Trucker or Tom Richmond. These are masters at it. Yeah. And uh, Spy versus Spy, which looks very mechanical in many aspects, tells the story that it's supposed to tell with exquisite feeling and detail. I I just can't imagine anyone doing it any better. Even Antonio Provias, who originated Spy vs. Spy and did a masterful job while he was still able, I think that Peter Cooper is Antonio's uh, equal and does honor to the creation 
that Antonio created. And Paul Coker, his whimsical drawings, especially in, in things like cl rhyming cliches or something like that written by Frank Jacobs. And they're, they're so delightful. But these are my buddies, and uh, what else am I going to say about them except that I admire them all? Well, the thing about your particular thing was I, I felt like there's always like a, a formal invention and maybe Will Eisner was like interesting because of that. But like in the cop comic that you did with Stan Lee, like it's very dynamic. Like every panel, the colors and the shapes are moving around. They move toward and back away from the camera. And then in like the tall tales, it's kind of almost the opposite. Like it's a Windsor McKay thing where like each panel is almost identical, but there's like these slight shifts. It's like uh, you seem to be really interested in like what you can do with the, the page. I would have to agree with you on that because I think it affects all artists that way. Any blank space that needs to be filled suggests something. But of course, the subject matter directs your pen more than anything. The fold-in in particular forces you to work a certain way. The limitation of little panels forces other cartoonists to work in other ways. Uh, and uh, Sergio, because his cartoons run in the margins of the, of the magazine, presents its own limitations, and he's got to think differently. For example, can't think vertically uh, when he's got a horizontal uh, margin to work in. So he can't uh, come up with an idea that involves the Empire State Building. He has to come up with an idea that involves a subway instead. So, you know, we work on the stage that we're given. Those of us who succeed are the ones who exploit our stage. We take our stage and we regard it not as limiting, but actually as expanding. And Sergio, if you give him a vertical space, the margin vertically, he comes up with the most marvelous cartoons involving ladders and smoke and water spouts and things of that sort. If you give him a horizontal space, the next thing you know, he's got subways or uh, trains or uh, horizontal things going right. on. <laughs> Do you feel like you in particular and the MAD team in general are like problem solvers? Well, our, our basic problem is to make people laugh. The only way you can make people laugh is by surprising them. How do you capture surprise? I really don't know. If I knew, I'd write a book about it and make a million dollars. When I sit down to work, the only way I can find something that's surprising is if it surprises me. It's a very elusive business. Now, when you're given a subject, like, for example, let's say that uh, I create a thing for MAD about dogs. Well, then you start to think in terms of very little dogs, very big dogs, uh, dogs as pets, dogs as attackers, and, you know, you think of all things dogs do. But this is a tough subject. How, how, do, you, uh, how do you get an idea? I don't know. I've been lucky that I've gotten some. <laughs> You've been lucky for a while. <laughs> I've been lucky for a while, yeah. 
they're challenging. Yeah. It's, 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 I think the best motivation is what makes you laugh? What makes you as a cartoonist laugh? And if you can laugh along with what you're drawing, you may have something. Other than that, I don't know. Some of it is uh, mechanical, you know. You have a certain kind of space to work in. When I did paperback books, uh, I had little pages. When I do a fold-in, I have the whole big page. You know, so you work within your limitations. Do you have any thoughts on or anything you remember from like the the censorship era with uh, EC and, and, and the early MAD? I remember it only as an observer because at that time, while I admired the the adventurous work that the guys were at EC were doing in the horror comics because it was so imaginative and really very exciting stuff. You know, there were no limits. Anything that they could imagine in terms of scariness as opposed to uh, humor. You know, we all have fascination of scary stuff. I mean, I used to go to horror movies and stuff like that. It was entrancing the inventiveness that came about. But I wasn't affected by that period because I was doing uh, either children's books like comic books like Super Rabbit or Teenage like Patsy Walker. And uh, I was having a very good time doing those things. But I read... EC Comics, and I envied the people that were working on this highly adventurous stuff. I loved Harvey Kurtzman's uh, war comics, in which he was writing human interest stories about the horrors of war. I liked all those things because they were so challenging in, you know, new fields. I had done so many teenage magazines that, you know, of course I was starting to get bored with you know, who's going to go to the prom? <laughs> Especially I was doing teenage stuff about girls. I couldn't even do football. So <laughs> I did peripherally by using Patsy Walker's boyfriend, Buzz. Uh, I got him into scrapes of, uh, that involved boys. But uh, mostly it was about girl things. So I was making a, a good living out of that. And I wasn't complaining, and I wasn't going to go try and get into the EC line, even though I knew the people there. When Wortham came along, I was in a safe harbor. Uh, he didn't bother us in the uh, Archie and Patsy Walker. He didn't bother any of that stuff. But I, I felt bad for the guys at EC whom I knew, like Harvey Kurtzman and Feldstein and Elder and Davis, I felt they were threatened. For me, I think part of the idea with, with MAD and why it kind of upset parents on a certain level is that sense of ownership that kids had that you were talking about earlier. It wasn't so much the jokes themselves as it was just they were participating in something that, that was kind of their own. Well, I, I had heard a number of parents tell their children not to read MAD because it was a subversive magazine, that it attacked American institutions, 
I'm surprised Trump hasn't gone after MAD, because MAD was a perfect foil for people who thought that everything in the United States of America was terrific as long as you lived in a $50 million house in the suburbs. So, yes, there were a lot of parents who accepted the notion that MAD was subversive. And in fact, there was a general out in the Midwest somewhere who said that uh, MAD was a communist organization. And J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI did institute an investigation of MAD as a communist mouthpiece. Wow. Did, did FBI people come to the office? I didn't work in MAD's office. I've always been freelance. Okay. So I, I don't know what went on in the office. I have a feeling that something did occur. Uh, no one talked about it, and I didn't ask about it. But I think MAD was investigated. However, there's an interesting story connected to this, which I've told on other occasions, is that a retired general from, of the U.S. Army claimed that MAD was a communist mouthpiece. Bill Gaines did not take that lying down, and he sued. And he went out to mi the Midwest where the trial was held. He sued for defamation of character or something like that, and was able to prove that MAD had absolutely no connection whatsoever to any kind of political party, that it was just a uh, fun magazine. And he won the case, and a judgment was being made against the general. And Bill Gaines said that he didn't want the general to have to pay for his mistake. He was only interested in an apology from the general. And as far as I know, the general came forth with an apology. Bill Gaines did not recover any money, and the issue was ended. But it was good publicity for MAD uh, as far as getting a clean bill of health, that it was not connected in any way to any subversive organization. And the rest is history. Do you feel like, I mean, because it's kind of both ways, do you think MAD is subversive, like in some way? No, I don't think it's subversive. I think MAD is, it could be said to be a little bit unfair at times. In other words, when it goes after some personality in the public eye, someone in show business, and uh, makes fun of that person for, well, for example, let's say right now, Mad has, has done a number of uh, things about Donald J. Trump in which it, it's very critical now, it could be said that it's taking sides in a political campaign. In that respect, I would say that it might be considered unfair. But I think, like all Americans, MAD is entitled to a point of view, and uh, we all are entitled to a point of view, and Trump supporters don't care for our point of view, and we're entitled to not care for their point of view. So that's the American way. We don't all have to march in, in lockstep. So uh, my personal feeling is I might not go after Trump. I would just say 
let the people vote. That's the ultimate way to find out whether Trump is okay or not. I mean, after all, it's a democracy. That's what we do. We nominate people and then we vote for them or against them. But I don't set policy at MAD, and I think uh, the writers who write articles in MAD are entitled their point of view. Do you think that MAD has ever done anything to change people's minds about a subject? Or do you think it's just sort of entertained some kids? I think MAD has, in some instances, successfully, I'm not going to use the word exposed, in a derogatory way, but I would like to use it in the way that it really, dictionary meaning. It has exposed to view what's going on and left it to the reader to make up his mind whether Mad's exposure is fair or not fair. If it exposes how a politician operates, It's up to the reader to say to himself, oh, Matt has gone overboard on this. I can't buy this. Or to say, this is very funny what Matt has done, but uh, you can't take it seriously because Matt is a fun magazine, and that's what it's supposed to do, be funny. So everybody's entitled to take it whichever way he wants, wants to. Matt should never proselytize. It should never take sides. It should never say, vote for anybody who's running against so-and-so. I mean, or for so-and-so. What about Alfred E. Newman? Well, we should (laughs) all vote for Alfred E. Newman. If if America's going to be great again, it's only going to be with Alfred E. Newman for president. What do you feel like his appeal was? Like somehow, (laughs) I think that future generations, that will be the hardest part of MAD for anyone to understand. Like, who was this guy and why was he on all the pictures and why did anyone care? What do you think made him kind of resonate with people? I think there is not a single human being anywhere on earth who hasn't at one time or another said to himself or herself, Why did you do that, you idiot? Now, Alfred E. Newman deflects that idiocy from yourself to somebody else. So instead of saying to yourself, why did I do that? What an idiot I am. You can look to Alfred E. Newman and say, he did it. He's the (laughs) idiot. I'm off the hook. Our scapegoat for the country. (laughs) He's the scapegoat for the country, as John said. It's right on the mark. <laughs> so he should be president because then he, he'll be up there for our sins. Well, we could do worse. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. I think we should probably wrap it up. Well, um, it's been very enjoyable. Uh, Zach is a wonderful questioner. He is. Yes, he is. And <laughs> he makes it easy for the interviewee. Thanks. That's a compliment, Zach. I, I am always like, what's the, where's the barb? But uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. You're both welcome, and you're a delightful couple of guys, and I enjoyed this uh, very much. I hope I contributed something. Uh, makes me come off better than Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Why worry? Why worry?
Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest. Oh, Jaffe's latest work at uh somewhere. Somewhere includes every issue of Mad Magazine, which you can pick up anywhere magazines are sold. You can also pick up his life story called Al Jaffe's Mad Life by Mary Lou Weissman and illustrated by Al himself from It Books. You can also get the complete Mad Fold-Ins from 1964 to 2010 from Chronicle Books. Everywhere books are sold. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Pepping or Tumblr, all things Pepping. And Zach has 200 pieces in the show L.A. Intersections at the Fabian Castanier Gallery in Culver City through the summer. The show also features works from Zess, James Jean, and Andrew Schultz, among others. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. You're absolutely right, Zach. You're absolutely right.